Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and we're calling today's show Global DC. Why Global DC? Well, it turns out more than one in eight DC residents come from outside the United States. In the district's public schools, you can find students hailing from 133 different countries and speaking more than 100 different languages. Then, of course, we have the suburbs, where you can also find quite the international mix. So, in honor of this incredible diversity, we'll devote the next hour to traveling the globe without leaving the region. We'll meet members of the local Salvadoran community. It was a place where people could identify where they came and others would know what that meant without having to explain a lot. And we'll talk with a vet who studies global pandemics. The surveillance has really steeped up a lot and we've managed to identify over 200 new viruses. Plus, we'll explore the rapidly changing neighborhood of Chinatown. But of course, you didn't see the uh, office buildings, the convention center. You didn't see any of the uh, tourists here. Just uh, neighborhood people. But before we get to all that, I want you to think back. Back to your childhood. A very specific part of your childhood, actually. Fourth grade. Now, think about it. What were you doing back in fourth grade? In school, I mean. Were you practicing fractions? Were you learning photosynthesis? Maybe you were studying the British colonization of the New World? Well, let's fast forward to now, where a modern-day fourth grader named Sarah Schmidt has been up to something a little bit different. We made the treaty last week about buying the land, and once we bought the land, we bought 20,000 troops with our solar power plants, our two submarines, and our oxygen production plant. So now we're scattering them and making sure that areas are covered for military strike. Sarah Schmidt, you see, isn't just a fourth grader at Agner Hurt Elementary School in Charlottesville, Virginia. Sarah Schmidt is an officer in the United Nations. I'm the CFO, helping out with all the military stuff that's going on. And this morning, there's a ton of military stuff going on because we're several weeks into the World Peace Game, a geopolitical simulation dreamed up in 1978 by Sarah's teacher, John Hunter. And he's written all about his adventures with the game in a brand new book, World Peace and Other Fourth Grade Achievements. Can you you show me what's going on here? It's a four-foot-by-four-foot-by-four-foot plexiglass structure. There's an undersea level down here and a ground and sea level with factories and cities and troops and uh, ICBMs and religious shrines and all the things we have on Earth. We've got an aircraft level with territorial airspace and air forces, clouds and weather that move around randomly. And then we have an outer space layer with uh, asteroid mining, satellites, and even a black hole right there. The kids have to solve that too. As Hunter says, the kids have to solve that too because it's one of the 50 global crises he presents to his students at the start of the World Peace Game. And these 50 crises run the gamut. I mean, we're talking famines. Ethnic and religious and minority rights disputes. Endangered species. A hazardous waste spill from a nuclear power plant. There's also a chemical power plant involved right near farmlands. Not to mention breakaway republics. And an oil spill. Climate change. Things like that. Intractable stuff. And the way Hunter's designed it, all these crises the students must solve are interconnected. There's no conventional solution. They have to create and invent a solution. I myself, who invented it, can't 
figure it out. I can't solve it. The students play in four teams, each representing an imaginary country. And the names change with each group of students that play the game. They name their own countries. They also take on leadership roles in their countries. Prime Minister, Secretary of State, a Minister of Defense, and a CFO, Chief Financial Officer. Students who aren't in the four countries, like our UN CFO Sarah Schmidt, take on other roles. We have a United Nations body, arms dealers, and a World Bank body as well. Hunter also assigns two more positions, the saboteur and the weather god or goddess. And they're there really to offset the children's uh, good intentions. The saboteur does that through, well, you guessed it, sabotage. Through ambiguity, misdirection, misinformation, and a small budget with the mercenaries and a couple of ICBMs. They're trying to destabilize the entire game. Everybody knows that person's in the room. Nobody knows who it is. So it causes every student to have to think more critically and deeply about everything that's said in the room all the time. As for the weather god or goddess, this time around that role is being played by Caitlin Galloway. And she has two spin boards. She uses one to control the stock market. You can spin for no change in your stocks. You can spin for stocks skyrocket, stocks plummet. And she uses the other to control the weather. There can be fair weather, tornado on the capital, sub-zero cold snap, sandstorm, blizzard, cloud cover 100%, and a tsunami in the west coast, hurricanes too. With so much going on, Caitlin admits that initially the world peace game was pretty scary. It was pretty nerve-wracking at first. There's a lot of problems in the world that we should solve. But she eventually realized how much you can achieve when you cooperate with your fellow players. And Sarah Schmidt agrees. Teamwork has a big role in this game because if you don't get along, it could be a long way down the pain train. Because as John Hunter points out, to win the World Peace Game, students must make two things happen. One, they solve all 50 crises. And two, every country's asset value must have increased past its starting point. And you simply can't do either without collaborating, Hunter says. He remembers this one game a few years back where it was the final day of play and the students had worked out all the crises, every single one. But the asset value of the poorest country was down. And we're talking way down. And up until, I think, the last three or four seconds on the clock, we were struggling with a solution. That's when the prime minister of the wealthiest country had this eureka moment, and he asked all the other countries, plus the UN, to pool their funds and donate them to the struggling country. And just like that, the game was won. The collaboration that comes about, I don't have to teach it, I don't have to preach it. If you can allow the the learning to happen organically and it comes from within them and within their own experience, it's so much richer and deeper and it lasts so much longer than if it's imposed from outside. John Hunter has been playing the World Peace Game for more than three decades. At his school, in summer camps, he's even played with students in Norway. And get this, in all that time, he's never seen students lose. Not once. And sometimes it's a very dire situation where it doesn't seem possible, but they've always managed to win the game. Part of it, he says, is how his students collaborate, but another part is how he behaves. He doesn't butt into the game or tell his students what to do, what not to do. Instead, he treats these CFOs and prime ministers and secretaries of state as peers, equals. So together we become co-teachers. And they, in the safe place, can say, well, we'll just try. It doesn't work, we'll try something else. It doesn't work, we'll try something else. We get better and better trying. Eventually, they win. And they save the world. They save the world every time. And they're going to grow up and hopefully be able to do that for real.
You can find more information on world peace and other fourth grade achievements and see photos of that 4x4x4 plexiglass structure on our website, metroconnection.org. So in the World Peace game, students play at being things like military commanders. But at the place we'll visit next, up in suburban Maryland, you'll find grown-ups for whom the military is a way of life. Emily Kopp visited Fort Meade to find out how it's become a training ground for military members from other countries around the world. The Defense Information School sits on the campus of Fort Meade in Anne Arundel County, surrounded by barbed wire and layers of security. The military has trained its public affairs officers here for years. Now it's training other military spokespeople, too. Colonel Jeremy Martin is the commandant. Well, we, are, we would be uh, what you would call a combat multiplier. To be able to communicate with a certain audience in whatever region of the world we may be operating in, to tell them um, our intent, why we are there. This is the third time the school has had an international class. There are just four students in a trailer classroom surrounded by books like Twitter Power 2.0 and the Zen of Social Marketing. Turkish Lieutenant Colonel Ilker Temiz says his communications team back home could be more effective. When we make an explanation uh, to, to the public, we only uh, say the normal facts, uh, what the situation is. But uh, we generally forget our message uh, that we... For example, we, we, we are here to support you. We are here to help you. On this day, Temiz and his classmates are discussing how to get the public to trust the military. One way, which can be controversial, joining up with non-governmental groups already working in the region. And messaging. You talked about messaging. Remember, these civilian organizations and NGOs have been in the country for years before, oftentimes, before the military sets foot. This is new to some of the students. But First Lieutenant Maria Arama has been doing public affairs for years. She edits videos for the Moldovan Ministry of Defense. She says the culture makes it harder to connect with the people. We are currently trying to be more free in our speech. We have this right, we have this freedom, but we can't because of our mentality. She attributes that to Moldova's Soviet past. Instructor Stefo Lehman often sees students in Arama's position. They come from democracies that say they practice free speech. Many students are surprised at how we approach the media. They oftentimes come here with the perception that, okay, this is a propaganda school, you know, or no, there's no way we're going to provide them all the information that we do. We say that even if the information is embarrassing to your commander or your command, you still have a legal obligation to provide that information. So they're surprised how open we are. When the students aren't in class, they're writing mock press releases or doing mock interviews. They also go to the Pentagon to see how spokesman George Little fields questions from reporters. Well, I'm not in the business of messaging. I'm in the business of facts. And the facts are that we have recently... Halfway into the course, Filipino Army Captain Jeffrix Molina says he's already changing his opinion of journalists. We always see the media in our country before as threat to our organization. But now the, the way... Media is introduced to our, to our, during our class, during our visit to, to, to Washington, to the press people. Media is a good partner of the military. 
The Pentagon wants students to leave here happy about the United States in general. Bonds built here could translate into better working relations with the American military in the field. These students say they like Washington, but there's one thing about it that Ilker Temes says he won't miss. People are very kind, but I think uh, all the families have two or three cars. That's why uh, the roads are very crowded. Big problem is transportation. That's a lesson no one needs to be taught in a classroom. I'm Emily Kopp. Want to get a glimpse of that class at the Defense Information School? You can see photos on our website, metroconnection.org. Time for a break, but when we get back, 30 years of highs and lows for Salvadorans in D.C. Unfortunately, I'd have to say that many people who came here as children or as teenagers or as adults do not remember Washington, D.C. as being a welcoming city. That and more in just a minute on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection, where today we are trekking around global D.C. Our next stop is the Smithsonian's National Zoo, which is a pretty international place, if you think about it, given that it houses hundreds of species from across the earth. And the person in charge of keeping all those exotic animals healthy is the zoo's chief veterinarian, Dr. Suzanne Murray. But veterinarians like Murray don't just play a role in keeping the world's animals healthy. More and more, they're key in keeping the world's humans healthy as well. Environment reporter Jonathan Wilson headed to the zoo to talk with Dr. Murray about identifying the deadly diseases we can contract from wildlife. We've had avian bird flu, we've had swine flu. These are all things that have some connection to animals. How does it affect how you go about your daily research and work? And uh, I understand you've done a lot of traveling as well. Yes, exactly. I have done a lot of traveling for the zoo, and it's been wonderful because it gives us an opportunity to uh, share what we know about our animals here in the collection with wildlife and vice versa. What we learn with wildlife, we come back and take to and apply that to animals here at the zoo. But there's also a much broader issue, which is the next emerging pandemic threat. And the last two decades, we've seen a lot more of things that affect humans also, animals and humans on a much broader scale. And about 70% of the emerging infectious diseases that affect humans, like you said, swine flu, Ebola, monkeypox, um, are zoonotic in nature, meaning it comes from the animal population. And what we've discovered over the last two decades is that there hasn't been enough information, enough background uh, surveillance of what's going on in the wildlife population. And if we really want to stop the next emerging pandemic threat before it, hits and kills a lot of people, we need to have some more information. So uh, Smithsonian is part of this wonderful grant from um, USAID. It's, it's part of an emerging pandemic threat program. So the goal of the EPT program, the Emerging Pandemics Threats Program, and ours in particular, PREDICT, is to help get um, get enough information to predict, predict and mitigate the next uh, pandemic threat before it happens. Is it hard to identify once a virus or a disease has mutated and made it over to humans. How do you 
trace it back to where it came from, even with samples. Is that difficult? Well, we work very closely, the PREDICT team works very closely with CDC. So the CDC would do the human aspect and work with the, the, um, the hospitals and the families and, and do research there and take care of the people. We'll look at animals in the area and we'll look at some of our programs and find out were there 20 dead bats, were there 10 dead um, uh, monkeys, Can we anesthet- have we already anesthetized animals and collected those samples, or should we uh, go about collecting those samples now? And then we've already set up, in the first few years of the program, laboratories, and we know that ahead of time. So the laboratories are waiting for the samples, and we've got excellent partners who do um, pathogen discovery. So they are able to do various types of advanced testing, PCR and next-generation PCR. So the system is set up so this can get done very rapidly, first in batches, to determine what type of virus do we have. And then more specifically, is it novel and how do we treat it? One of our programs led by Pete Mara here at um, Smithsonian is an excellent program in Uganda whereby um, wildlife deaths are, are, are being uh, recorded on cell phone in real time. So rangers are trained as they go about their day to patrol to say one dead uh, baboon, two dead hippos, a dead stork. It was, and then it gets reported in real time. So at any time, you can look on the screen and, and have an, a uh, real-time assay, a look at what's actually died today, in the last week, in the last month, so, so we can determine if there's an outbreak and then respond even more quickly. And that is actually is turning out to be a real key and has helped play a, a role in some of the Ebola outbreaks and hemorrhagic fevers in Uganda. In terms of your work with pandemics, do you feel like because of all the research that we've done, we're in a better place? Or do you feel like because of our encroachment on wildlife habitat that we're in a more dangerous place when it comes to disease? What a great question. And it's a little bit of both, right? That because of the increased anthropogenic changes and the increased interaction between people and animals and our global economy, whereby people can get on an airplane in Hong Kong and then get to London and then D.C., within 24 hours, the factors that make it right for uh, virus mutation and, tra- and uh, translation and, uh, into other species um, are really very high. So we are at increased risk. But fortunately, because of forward thinking and uh, advocation by programs like this USAID program, the surveillance has really steeped up a lot, and we've managed to identify over 200 new viruses. That's actually really huge because it's that much more that's in the data bank. That's that much more we can be aware of. The answer to your question is yes and yes. Yes, we're at much greater risk, but we're also much better prepared. That was Dr. Suzanne Murray, the chief veterinarian of the National Zoo, speaking with environment reporter Jonathan Wilson. For more information about Dr. Murray's work and the Smithsonian's role in the Emerging Pandemic Threat Program, visit our website, metroconnection.org. We move now from the Woodley Park National Zoo area to Columbia Heights. In the early 1980s, Columbia Heights and its neighbor, Mount Pleasant, were in the midst of some serious change. A civil war was raging in El Salvador, and thousands of Salvadorans were fleeing their country and making their way to these two neighborhoods. But here's the thing. The Cold War was on, right? And because of Cold War politics, the U.S. government didn't officially recognize Salvadorans as refugees. So without legal status, they couldn't access basic services. There was one organization, however, that stepped in to fill that void by providing free health care. And now, decades later, La Clinica del Pueblo is celebrating its 30th birthday. 
Jacob Fenston visited La Clinica and found out just how much D.C.'s Latino community has changed over the past three decades. Nurse Lorena Anaya is visiting with a patient named Dulce who's having trouble seeing out of her right eye. La Clinica del Pueblo serves some 8,000 patients annually. Most, like Dulce, are immigrants, and more than 40% have no health insurance. Salvadorans still make up the biggest group of Latinos in D.C., but the Latino community has changed a lot since 1983, and so has the city. It was a black and white city uh, with a small Latin American community that was made up of people who worked in the embassies and the international organizations. Catalina Sol is the chief programs officer at La Clinica, where she first started working in 1991. Like many, she moved to the D.C. area from El Salvador in the 1980s. Unfortunately, I'd have to say that many people who came here as children or as teenagers or as adults do not remember Washington, D.C. as being a welcoming city. They saw it as a city that did not have services for them and frequently rejected them, and um, and that was a, a decade to be survived. You know, in 1991, people who lived in Washington, D.C. saw perhaps the Central American community for the first time because there were riots in Mount Pleasant after a Salvadoran man who was under the influence was shot or were seen to be shot at point-blank range um, by an African-American police officer. And there were three days of rioting that followed as a result. And for us at La Clinica, that was uh, several months after I had first started working. It was an opportunity for the first time to start speaking to other uh, bodies, including the police. I remember interpreting for our executive director then, who was a torture victim, uh, to the police about what the experiences of torture and war had done to our community and why this particular act had led to so much outpouring of rage. And so uh, it wasn't a very good time for people from El Salvador and Central America. What was La Clinica like when you when you started working here? I mean, you were just talking about the aftermath of the riots, mm-hmm. but uh, what was it like in general? Well, we were in a different building, and it was a piece of Latin America in all of its ways. Uh, our clinic night was starting at 4 o'clock. We would register 40 people uh, by 4.30, and then we would serve them until 12 midnight, 1.30 in the morning, you know, um, with the volunteer residents that we had. But it was a place where people could come and be greeted by someone who would recognize the name of their very small village that might not even be in a map. Um, and and when they said, I'm from this particular place, uh, there would be others who would know, though that was the site where there was a massacre in 1981, or, you know, or that was the site that had all of the bombing with white phosphorus. You know, it was a place where people could identify where they came and others would know what that meant without having to explain a lot. And um, it took us a long time to actually incorporate as an organization because I think that we all believed that eventually we would return, that we weren't going to stay here forever, which is, you know, the the way that the immigrant experience is lived. You know, you think you're only going to be here for five years and then you'll go back home or you'll go back home when the war ends. And then as time goes on, you realize that you belong here. How has the population um, of, of patients that you serve changed over the past 30 years? Our community includes now people who were adults at the time that the war began, the children and adolescents who were fleeing military conscription or who perhaps were combatants that were forced to be in the armies in the 80s. They're entering their 40s now. 
Yesterday, one of our mental health therapists was saying, you know, we have a whole generation of people who were children and adolescents in the worst part of the war who are entering this age group. It's more likely that their post-traumatic stress disorder is going to become more active because that tends to happen with age. Are we prepared to deal with a whole generation? Um, Many people are represented in our substance abuse program are of that age group, you know, Central Americans who were teenagers in the 80s and who experienced all of that disruption in their formative years. You know, many times people say, why are you still talking about the war that ended 30 years ago? But we're, we're living it in many, many expressions of our life. And the community continues to represent that mix of people who have been here for a very long time and people who just got here a day ago, three days ago, six days ago. And the whole community is affected by this transformative historical period of war during the 80s that affected our whole region and that is the mark of our immigration experience you know that experience of war That was Catalina Sol of La Clínica del Pueblo, speaking with Metro Connections' Jacob Fenston. La Clínica is celebrating its 30th anniversary this weekend. the district, more than 40% of students in adult education programs are taking ESL classes, or English as a second language. The largest program serving these learners is the Carlos Rosario International Public Charter School in Northwest D.C. In the fourth part of our series, Yesterday's Dropouts, special correspondent Kavitha Cardoza visited the school to learn why so many adult learners struggle to master English. At Carlos Rosario International Public Charter School in Northwest D.C., the mosaic of smiling, diverse faces on the building facade outside mirrors the students inside. The school serves more than 2,000 adult learners from nearly 80 different countries. Almost all are immigrants and here to learn English. Alison Kokoros, the chief academic officer, says every year people start lining up at 3 in the morning to apply for admission. We have 1,000 students on our waiting list right now. Haida Wrigley with Literacy Work International is a national expert on adult learning. She isn't surprised by the long waiting list. There are nearly 23 million adults in the U.S. who speak what's called limited English. Of those, Wrigley says, not even 5% are being served in ESL classes. Within the whole framework of education, adult education is a bit of a stepchild in terms of research and the resources available. And within that, the stepchild of the stepchild is really adult second language acquisition. Okay, so what we're going to be reading is this article in your newspaper on flu season. Okay. Alison Menhivar okay. is teaching adults basic English. They're working in small groups looking at a newspaper called Easy English News. What are the symptoms? How do people get the flu? All right. Menhivar says there are some techniques that work well when teaching a different language. Repeat yourself, use pictures and charts, have students practice speaking however halting they are, and bring in lots of props such as menus and metro maps. Since this is a health class, when we talk about nutrition, I'll bring in boxes, labels, packages, so they can look at the nutrition information. 
they need to be able to take their English and use it out on the streets as quickly as possible. And the best way to do that is to bring what's out there inside the school. So when researcher Heidi Wrigley is asked, why can't immigrants just learn English? She says she has to remind people how difficult it is to learn another language and how long it takes. She doesn't just require that you learn the grammar and the pronunciation. You need thousands of words and you have to build what we call communicative competence that allows you to know not just what to say, but what to say, to whom and when and what not to say. Jorge Delgado with Carlos Rosario says many of these adult students make incredible sacrifices to come to class. 40% have school-aged children themselves, and some send money home to support their families. Most work long hours already. The other day I was leaving an activity, and it was like 3 o'clock in the morning. And when I went to pay, it was one of my students. And I'm like, don't you have a class at 8.30? He's like, yep. So what time do you get out? About 5. They do all the uncomfortable jobs that make everyone else's life comfortable. Delgado says some students struggle with attendance because they're working two, sometimes three jobs. We said you're falling asleep in the class because you worked all night. And we do counsel them. Maybe you want to come next semester when it's colder and there's not as much work in the food industry. One of the students, Ana Perez, stopped going to school after the sixth grade in El Salvador when war broke out. Now she's trying to fill in the gaps in her education, even though she says it's challenging to juggle everything. I have to study. I have a grandchild. I have a daughter, a husband. Everything adds up. I am responsible for the house, for my studies, for my work. But Perez is in class every day. Monday to Friday, I try to never miss a day. A day of studying is sacred for me, I swear. Most students at this school aren't interested in going to college. They want to learn English so they can get a better job. Many of their dreams are one small step higher than what they're doing now. One student washes dishes in a restaurant and wants to be a server. Another babysits and wants to open a small daycare center. A third works in a beauty parlor and hopes to eventually become a supervisor there. The school currently offers three career paths, hospitality, IT and healthcare. Educators here are changing the way they teach so they can help get their students into jobs faster. In Doris Medina's nursing aid class, students play charades. One is acting out the word impatient while the rest guess. She's ready to go home. Ready to go home. She has something inside. But to be in these classes, students first need to reach an advanced level of English. It's the traditional or sequential model of teaching adults. You go through several levels of an English program, pass the GED test, and then go into some kind of career training. But researcher Haida Wrigley says this is completely unrealistic for adults because it takes years. It feels to students like they're falling into a black hole. She's helping Carlos Rosario convert to another integrated model of learning, where students don't have to wait until their English is fluent. Classes are team-taught, and so, for example, in culinary school, a technical teacher might show students how to cook, alongside an ESL teacher who helps them with language. To explain what ingredients they're using, explain their dish to an audience of diner, and develop the kind of vocabulary that allows them to talk knowledgeably about the skills that they have. 
This model has been highly successful in other states. It can compress time spent in class by at least a year, and students have higher earnings. For Anna Perez, who catches two buses to get to class, that's significant. She can't wait to graduate. Oi. It's a dream because I started from zero. I didn't even know how to say red in English. Adult learners at Carlos Rosario at least have a shot at a better job and a better future for their families. But for every one of the students who graduate from the school, there are five more waiting outside, hoping for a chance to have their own shot at the American dream. I'm Kavita Kadosa. Next week, we'll bring you the final piece in our Yesterday's Dropout series as we learn how one person's decision to drop out can affect an entire community. Up next, journeying from jail time in Sri Lanka to a gig in global advocacy. You know, it's not easy to be in prison any age, but uh, being in prison when you are young is especially painful. That and more is coming your way on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and as we continue our global DC show, we're going to meet a woman. Hi. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. <laughs> With a decidedly global background, Yi Chen is a filmmaker hailing from Shanghai in eastern China. When I was in China, um, becoming a filmmaker was an impossible dream for me. I never thought one day I would be making films. Um, but when I came here, I got into American University film program. I was interested in making documentaries. And Chen has just released her very first documentary. It's called Chinatown, and it explores the neighborhood we're visiting today, right around 7th and H Streets in northwest D.C. I've always been interested in uh, Chinese-American history as an immigrant coming here myself from China. And when I travel, I always love visiting Chinatown. The first Chinatown I ever visited in the United States was the San Francisco Chinatown. I dropped off my bag at the hotel, and I didn't even unpack, and I headed to the Chinatown. Chen spent a year shooting her documentary, which follows Chinese residents of D.C.'s Chinatown as they try to keep their culture alive in the rapidly changing neighborhood, which, by the way, actually started somewhere else. Chinatown first developed on Pennsylvania Avenue Northwest in the late 1800s. But in 1931, as the Federal Triangle Project neared completion, Chinatown moved to where it is now. And though D.C.'s Chinatown was never as expansive as San Francisco's or New York's, back in the day, it did have its share of Chinese groceries, restaurants, and residents. But during the 70s and the 80s, urban renewal and redevelopment plans. And since then, the real estate price just skyrocketed in Chinatown, and they couldn't afford renting anymore. So they moved out to um, Wheaton, Rockville, and suburbs in Virginia. So now, Chen says, DC Chinatown has the largest archway of all the Chinatowns in the United States. That'd be the Friendship Archway, designed by local architect Alfred Liu. But it's one of the smallest Chinatown in the United States. It's about three blocks and around 400 Chinese immigrants. And the majority of these immigrants live in a 10-story, 153-unit apartment complex on the corner of 6th and H. Hello, Good morning. Good morning. Come in. Known as Wa Luck House. 
Good, please see that. See that. See here. Okay. Yi-Chen and I stopped by the federally subsidized building to visit one of the immigrants from her documentary. I'm Jia Ting Shu. Uh, English name is Tina. It's for English class for convenient teacher call me. <laughs> Tina's in her 70s, and she and her husband have lived in Wallach House since 2000. Tina moved from Shanghai to Washington in 1992. And while she appreciates how much safer Chinatown is now, she says she misses the days when the neighborhood offered a bundle of Chinese restaurants and two Chinese grocery stores. The last one, Dahua Market, closed in 2005. Oh, she said that because there's not a large Chinese population, that there's not enough demand to have a Chinese grocery store here, and the residents travel to Falls Church, Virginia once a month on a bus to buy grocery, which is very inconvenient for them. Indeed, the Chinatown Development Corporation provides bus service to Great Wall Supermarket, where Wild Luck House residents can stock up on staples like bok choy, lotus root, bamboo shoots, and jellyfish. But with nearly 250 residents and only 52 bus seats, the wait list is pretty long. So what do you think is going to happen to Chinatown in the future? She was saying that she hopes the city will pay more attention to Chinatown, to its residents, and she wants to see more Chinese businesses and restaurants in Chinatown. The mom and pop shops are the entities that makes it Chinatown, you know, because the uh, usually the mom and pop shops are the Chinese people, or the Asians who run it. And according to Raymond Wong, another Chinatown resident in Yi Chen's film, we won't be seeing more of those mom and pop shops in DC's Chinatown anytime soon. The way the Hong Kong native sees it, the neighborhood's just going to get more and more corporate. And the corporate uh, entities are usually outsiders. I mean, here you'll see, we have a Hooters, but the sign is in Chinese. And we have a Bed Bath & Beyond, but you see the sign in Chinese. Right, right. Uh, The sign's in Chinese, but the owner's not Chinese, employee's not Chinese, and they don't serve Chinese Hooters. (laughs) 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 I've never been to Hooters, I don't know. (laughs) Wang directs the martial arts program at the Chinatown Community Cultural Center on H Street. The center offers classes in traditional brush painting, crafts, music, and, thanks to Raymond Wang, Kung Fu and Tai Chi. When I arrived here in the U.S., there was a Chinatown here. But of course, you didn't see the uh, office buildings, the convention center. You didn't see any of the uh, tourists here. It's just uh, neighborhood people. How do you feel about those changes? Well, it's kind of like a, a tidal wave coming at you. you. You just have to try to survive against it. You need some resistance and you need something to hold on to. So that's basically what I tried to do here at the Chinatown Cultural Community Center. Yi Chen says that tide is getting harder and harder to resist. Chinatown's Chinese residents only make up 14% of the neighborhood's entire population. And that 14%, well, the majority are getting up there in years. I fear the authenticity of Chinatown, whether it will still exist in 10, 20 years beyond the Friendship Archway. And the signs, like Bed Bath & Beyond and Starbucks in Chinese. And the signs in Chinese characters, exactly. Because what makes a Chinatown authentic, she says, isn't an archway or signs in Chinese. It's the people who've called the neighborhood their home for years and hope to do so for many more to come.
We have more information on Yi Chen's documentary film, Chinatown, including ways you can check it out on our website. We also have a link to a plan the district government drew up a few years back, suggesting ways to improve Chinatown's infrastructure and enhance the neighborhood's cultural character. You can find it all on metroconnection.org. Okay, so how's this for a personal trajectory? You're in Sri Lanka, where your decision to protest against the government lands you in jail. Fast forward several decades, and now you're working to promote human rights around the world. Well, that's precisely what happened to the man we'll meet next. Heather Taylor brings us his story. T. Kumar is the high-profile advocacy director at Amnesty International USA. He's frequently asked to testify before Congress about human rights issues. Amnesty International is pleased to testify. But back in the 1970s, Kumar was a teenager in his native Sri Lanka when one decision he made changed his life forever. He was actually 17 years old. When things became very bad in Sri Lanka for the Tamil minority. The government implemented laws that made it more difficult for ethnic Tamils to be admitted to the university. Kumar and his classmates were ethnic Tamils, so they decided to do something about it. I was involved, along with thousands of other students, to peacefully demonstrating against those laws. And one day we were demonstrating and imprisoned without any charge or trial. For a 17-year-old, landing in jail could have been a harrowing experience. But according to Kumar, in many ways, it wasn't at all. So we were like treated like heroes in the prison when we walked in. And the guards were so happy, and they were bringing sweets and everything from outside to help us because they were all belonged to the same ethnic minority, Tamil group. Uh, you know, first impression was very positive because nothing to fear. Everyone was very happy we were there. At the same time, for a teen who'd never been away from his family, the separation was difficult. You know, it's not easy to be in prison any age. But uh, being in prison when you are young is especially painful. And most importantly, you have been cut off from your immediate family. Once the human rights group Amnesty International learned about the imprisonment, it decided to investigate. I have never advocated or used violence. I was adopted as a person of conscience. And then they had a worldwide campaign uh, for my release. So thousands of people around the world were demonstrating or writing letters, meeting with their legislators, testifying. Thanks to those efforts, Kumar was finally released after six months behind bars. He continued his protests, and four or five months after his release, he was arrested again. But unlike his first experience, this imprisonment was starkly different. Uh, They never kept me in the in the Tamil areas because they felt that Tamil prison officials and Tamil prisoners are sympathetic. So they took us to the down south in a hostile environment. The guards were all belonged to the majority community. We were abused, we were tortured, beaten up. Over the course of more than five and a half years in jail, two events in particular dramatically affected his outlook. One of them was a death in the family. When I was first arrested, I was never shaken by my prison life. But then his mother passed away. This really shook me. And within a week of my mother's death, uh, they arrested me. 
this time when I went, I was so frustrated that I focused exclusively on education. He became religious and decided to study law in jail. So I started to sit for exams. To prepare for exams on his own required a large dose of self-discipline and determination, but the nature of prison life posed challenges. It's difficult to concentrate. But Kumar managed to find ways around those obstacles. In one prison, outside the prison, there was a clock tower. So, and I will, I will listen very carefully and I will know that's the time. So I will, like, study until midnight. It worked, and the experience inspired him to keep going. So then I continued study. I didn't stop, I, but the majority of my studies were in the prison. When he passed his exams and became a lawyer in Sri Lanka, he defended political prisoners. Because I understood exactly how to argue cases. Because I was inside, because I was, could understand the torture. I could understand the arrest, could understand detention, who could understand what's happening on the other side. But soon, it became too dangerous for him to remain in Sri Lanka. I have to leave the country because of the attack on Tamil minority. Large number of Tamils were killed. Kumar eventually landed safely in the U.S., where he earned a law degree from the University of Pennsylvania. But despite his extraordinary life, he readily concedes that fighting injustice was never smooth. It's not a big wow every day. No, you are depressed every year. The anniversaries, you know, first anniversary of prison, my birthday or my mother's birthday or father's, those things really hit you. So what sustained him most for more than five and a half years behind bars? I believe that what I am doing is the right thing for fighting against injustice. Also, there are people outside who sincerely believe and trust you and looking up to you. You can't let them down. I'm Heather Taylor. For the past six months or so, we've been checking in every now and again with a Maryland family that's been getting to know the big, wide world quite well by sailing around it. When we first met Jessica and Richard Johnson and their daughters, Emma and Molly, they were about to depart the eastern shore aboard their catamaran, Elsie. Since then, the family has traveled thousands of miles on a trip that will eventually take them all the way to New Zealand. Today, we catch up with them in Puerto Rico. This is Jessica on Elsie. Uh, Elsie is anchored on the south coast of Vieques. It's an island that belongs to Puerto Rico, and it's not too far east of the main island of Puerto Rico. We're here for a reason. We came down to this part of Vieques because we want to go and see the bioluminescent bay. The bioluminescence is caused by thousands of tiny zooplankton dinoflagellates that light up when you touch the water, either with your hand or a kayak paddle or just the, the wake of the boat. And um, so in a little bit, we're going to get in our dinghy and we're going we're gonna to motor around to the entrance of the bay. But um, once we get the, to the entrance of the bioluminescent bay, we're going to have to turn off our, our gas outboard engine and we're going to row in. Uh, they don't like to have anybody take a gas engine into the bay because it's harmful to the, to the organisms that live there. Oh my gosh, it's right there! Oh, it's right there! This is so cool! He doesn't even look like 
particles like plankton or anything. It just looks like the water is lighting up, you know? It's great with the stars overhead, too. Yeah. Wow, this is amazing. Apparently, the, the bay here is the brightest one in the world, and apparently it's a really good time to be here and see the bioluminescence because uh, yesterday was the new moon, so tonight it's almost completely dark. I think it's really cool because when you put your hand, my hands are still sort of sparkling with the bioluminescent thingy-bobs. <laughs> This is probably one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. It's like really awesome. That was Jessica, Richard, Emma, and Molly Johnson, along with shipmate Annie Ray. This story was produced by Metro Connections' Tara Boyle. You can find earlier stories about the Johnson's sailing expedition and get a preview of the tropical locales they'll be visiting in the months to come on our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Kavitha Cardoza, Jacob Fenston, Jonathan Wilson, and Tara Boyle, along with reporters Heather Taylor and Emily Kopp. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Robbie Feinberg. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. All the music we use is listed on our website. That's metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on metroconnection.org, you can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing online anytime. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll celebrate Mother's Day by devoting an entire show to motherhood. We'll hear from a brand new mother who actually recorded her very first days with her newborn child. We'll meet single moms who've adopted children from overseas. And we'll talk with families about how to parent fairly when one of your kids has autism. I really felt like, as their mother, I absolutely had to change the way the family was going. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.